Hello everybody and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Blackie, talk to writers about writing, and very often those writers are recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show. In this case, B.R. Yeager, way back in episode one, recommended that I talk to Ted Prokash, and we now have him on the show. He is a graduate of Algoma High School, author of five novels, curator of JoylessHousePublishing.com, and founding member of Hugh Blank's Joyless Ones. Those novels are Fool for Lesser Things, the Brothers Connolly, and Journey to the Center of the Dream, all through Joyless House Publishing, and Napawapi County Blues, through Expat Press, and Nikolai Andreevich, also from Expat Press. Now here's the part of the show where I ask you for money. If you would like to support this show in a sort of recurring way, you can do that on Patreon, patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe. For $2 a month, you get these episodes as soon as I'm done editing them, rather than at the end of the month. For $5 a month, you get the same, plus a weekly serialized set of stories about a strange man named Jellyfish Aches. There might be some more higher tiers later as well. I also recently just passed 10 patrons, which is a pretty big deal to me, and that's how come we got the recent Writing the Rapids rejoinder with Mike Correo. If you check out patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe, you'll see that there is another goal at 25 patrons, and if that seems interesting to you, go ahead and become a patron. Also, if a one-time donation is more your speed, paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe. You can send me as much or as little as you want. It all goes right into my bank account and helps me buy books for the show. Now, without further ado or shilling for myself, here's my interview with Ted. The new book, Nikolai Andreevich, starts off with like a, uh, starts off with a note to the reader. Uh, that sort of, I guess, dissuades you from taking certain things in the book too seriously. Um, uh, describing things as very Russian. Uh, you as, as the author not living in Russia, especially at the time the book takes place. Um, I found that very interesting, and, and I was wondering why you made that choice. Um, well, I think that's one of the things that sort of, I always kind of identified with in the, um, oh, you know, the, the fiction, the, the big, the big heavy hitters of that era, uh, mid to late 19th century Russian fiction, you know, you know, who we're talking about. Um, there's a lot of, I, I always felt there were a lot of parallels with kind of, our the present kind of kind of mindset um you know everything we obsess over you know american you know we're, we're so um unique um america you know and, and i think to everybody your like your time and place in history is so you know singular and unique and you know ever, the world's always going to end tomorrow and, and there's so much importance placed on current events, you know, in your little corner of the world. Um, and, and it was just kind of, that's one of the things that made me want to write a book like this was that I felt like it's so easily translated, you know, our times kind of so easily translated to, you know, this foreign place 150 years ago, you know, and, and just the, the fact that human nature and behavior sort of doesn't doesn't change much right um, 
and that's why so it's placed in russia and the narrator does a lot of you know the russian people and the russian man is this way and and it's and and it's just it's the same way that we look through everything through the prism of our you know through the lens of our current situation our country you know that's just how we are mm-hmm. people so so it's not an attempt you know the book wasn't an attempt to be like terribly i i tried to make it historically accurate to the point that it wouldn't um take the reader out of that you know setting in that era but it's not intended to be like a historical historically accurate piece you know sure. shouldn't be taught in schools uh to people that are trying to learn what it was like in russia right i um, i did think as i was reading it that it it might be interesting to teach this in a high school as Mm -hmm. a primer for Russian literature. Like Mm -hmm. just sort of like, here's, here's the temperature of kind of what you're going to be interacting when you start reading Tolstoy or something rather than throwing, you know, the brothers Karamazov at a 18 year old. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that would be one of my, one of the things that I would love would be for for a Russian to read this book, you know, in translation or something, because of course I've most of us have never read the you know Dostoevsky or Tolstoy in the original language, you know. So I'd just be curious to see how it would read, like you know, inverted or backwards or whatever, which is how we got all the Russian literature. Right. Those of us that can't read Russian. Yeah. That that would be interesting. I remember seeing on Reddit, on like the literary studies subreddit, which is kind of absurd that that exists, but they were kind of parsing different Russian translators. And they're like, ah, this guy's a little bit better than this guy. So it would be interesting okay. to have multiple translations mm-hmm. of this book and then have a whole bunch of Russian people kind of parsing them. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole, um, you know, people have, you know, favorite translators and yeah whenever if i ever get the time you know i like to read different translations of stuff but you know it's a pretty big chore to you know read war and peace and then turn around and read it again from a different translator you know i don't maybe when i retire yeah when i had noah cicero on we were talking about different translations of haikus and i think that that's so much easier to do than than dense russian literature yeah more sparse yeah um one one of the things i i noticed uh as i was getting into it um having like just um stepped off of finishing reading Napawapi County Blues is that Nikolai reads like a Ted Prokash book. Um, but it, it seems like you adopted some of the uh, flavors of at least translated Russian literature, like kind of there's like extra clauses in, in certain sentences and, and things like that. Did you try to uh make the book feel russian as you were writing it yeah absolutely yeah i'm glad that came through yeah because 
yeah, there's definitely a feeling. I wanted to recreate that experience, you know, at least the experience I had reading that stuff. Yeah, there's always there's such a a, a deliberate sort of way that the narrator always seems to go about things in that in those in those books. That it's 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 sometimes it's like a almost kind of a convoluted uh, language they use. Yeah, like you say, with all the clauses and. Yeah, so I definitely tried to tried to recreate that, and you know, so it's definitely, it's not a book for everybody. Maybe it would be. I don't know. Maybe it would come across fine, but the intention is definitely. It, I, that's why I refer to it, kind of uh, as uh, Dostoevsky fan fiction. Mm-hmm. You know, essentially, like I just wanted to. I enjoyed that stuff so much that I wanted to just kind of try. <laughs> try my hand at it you know it was interesting I was talking to a friend years ago when I kind of started it because I'd actually written a good chunk of it and then interrupted and and wrote Napawapi County Blues sort of in between and then came back to it um, but talking about you know she's like oh you're really gonna open yourself up to a lot of you know criticism because these are some serious you know the fanboys, the Dostoevsky scholars, mm-hmm. I'm sure from some serious, but, uh, that, that would be, but I would love, I would love that if, you know, some of those, those, uh, someone in the world of academia got a hold of it and I'd be curious to hear their, you know, their shock and disgust. <laughs> Too bad to say. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I think that that would be, would be pretty cool, but I, I also feel like, um, your sort of like average reader is primed for this a little bit. Like I feel like um, there's that Catherine the Great show on Hulu with Elle Fanning and uh, and Nicholas Holt that um, was was deliberately silly in a way that that this book is not. Mm-hmm. But you have enough, um, at least in the visual medium, like period dramas mm-hmm. that uh, I feel like your normal audience isn't uh so like uh oh that's not what he would wear he wouldn't wear a billowy overcoat and a hat like that that's ridiculous yeah he's wearing a an apple watch in that scene Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah i think well yeah and i've been reading the uh i know i'm not gonna recall the author but the wolf hall uh books which is um you know, it's about Cromwell um, mm. and, uh, under uh, Henry VIII there. There's a a British woman, I can't remember her name, who wrote him. But, uh, uh, Hillary Mantel, looks like. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so I haven't read the new one. My brother, my older brother was, um, you know, pushing them on me. And I liked, liked the first couple, and now I haven't read the new one. I got to get to that. Yeah, so there's there's a place... For period stuff and you know popular for po- in popular fiction i think in the, the mainstream not that we're there in the mainstream but, no no yeah. i can show you my spotify numbers and we are definitely not <laughs> in the mainstream but uh kind of going back to what you were talking about right at the beginning there about how like everybody like in their own time sort of feels like their own time is kind of singular um mm-hmm. it's interesting to 
and I mentioned before the show, and I've mentioned on the show a million times that I work in news, um, mm-hmm. but reading this directly after the Trump presidency, I think hit a lot different than if it, I had read it exactly one month ago or something like that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, like, I don't know your politics really at all, but is that like, is there a lot of Trump stuff uh, to you that that ties in with czarist Russia? Oh, um, well, no, I wouldn't say Trump exactly, but um, <clears throat> but definitely the uh, it's kind of the state of you know our democracy. Um, you know this, so like I set this book. Um, well, it was say 30, you know, 50 years or so before the, uh, you know, the revolution in Russia. Um, and yeah, and I, I felt like there's a lot of parallels between sort of that, that era, just sort of the general zeitgeist or whatever, uh, the way, you know the out of touch the the sense of um people being uh, the 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 autocracy in their case or you know the our democracy just being out of touch with the people um being sort of ineffectual you know it's almost like it sort of just moves of its own momentum you know and there's no you know and that's why you know people are taking extreme kind of stances, extreme measures, you know, it just doesn't feel like the, you know, the government's not, it doesn't feel representative to most people. And yeah, so I feel like there's, there's parallels, you know, and I don't know if we're, you know, on the verge of the cusp of a revolution. I don't know. I mean, I don't think things can keep going on this way forever. Right. I I thinking about it now I also find it kind of cute how ineffectual your revolutionaries were in the book as well like just incredibly yeah. feckless Yeah and how quick yeah and they they quickly you know uh the ringleaders there kind of ditched all their you know kind of lofty goals and to just you know cash in ultimately and you know and I think that's kind of a lot of parallels for yeah. that, you know, current <laughs> our government and politics. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I, I almost tweeted out this, uh, a joke recently that was like, what if right wing ideology is, is really, really good and like really logically sound, but we'll never know because the only people who talk about it the most are just like grifters who are trying to make a buck off of your racist uncle. <laughs> yeah yeah and you don't you don't know you know the idea is you know in 30 years you know who knows what message is going to prevail and, and whatever and, and, and how history is going to judge it you know, you know. Uh, speaking of history judging things uh, your first book is now like almost 10 years old um, and yeah. I remember I wasn't paying attention to Indie Lit back in 2011, but 
but your name popped up a lot for me probably back in like 2015 when I was really starting starting to like read Blake Butler and and go on vice.com and hearing about mm-hmm. alt lit and and searching around for stuff like you're you're pretty um isolation isolationist when it when it comes to social media and stuff like that but as sort of a silent watcher what has changed in the past 10 years in this writing sphere oh um um i don't uh, i don't know (laughs) honestly i've never um you know i i truly i didn't you know at that time um when i finally um decided to publish you know and i went about it in just the complete the most naive you know stupidest way possible i mean my first book i did you know got 500 copies printed by some online you know some online printing company and you know and and then and then from there moved on to try to you know i published on um amazon whatever company they own you know they bought uh whatever whatever printing print on demand company and so I did my next two books that way and kind of slowly like kind of despite my own um, idiocy you know happened to find you know a circle you know it was kind of um expat was you know and obviously they and then you know he published Napawabi County Blues um but yeah I didn't I, I was never real clued into what was happening like I found you know I kind of um, happened upon Sam Pink uh, probably in I don't know maybe five four or five years ago I don't know you know and to me you know it was like I just discovered him I didn't even know you know it, it would have been popular I didn't know who Tao Lin was or whatever mm-hmm. I didn't know what any of that shit was you know just because I and I didn't read a lot of contemporary stuff until um until I actually you know that was kind of part of the evolution I guess of you know, you realize that if you're gonna, if anybody's gonna pay attention to what you're doing, you almost have to be a member of the community to some degree, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's when I sort of um, even started to, to read any, read any contemporary authors. I just, I just never did. I didn't know where they were, where the good ones were anyway. Sure. And, you know. So I don't know how writing has changed. I mean, I guess there's still people that write the same way they did when outlet hit right i guess i don't know mm. i don't know i guess that sort of answers another one of the questions i had prepped which was why why didn't you read a lot of contemporary lit but i guess if you just didn't know uh where they were or what yeah. they were doing yeah oh there's puppy yeah, there he is <laughs> yeah i yeah i just uh, and that's just uh that's just who I am I'm not I'm I don't know I'm sort of oblivious that way maybe I'm on the spectrum somewhere but we did you know I was in a band for forever I mean we're still technically a band but um you know it's been 15 years now maybe that we've been together um and we would we toured you know we would do like you know usually a week you know two week or 10 day tour every year and you know and i was kind of always the one that like 
who is that? Who is that? You know, I didn't remember mm-hmm. anybody's name. I didn't remember who the bands were. I, I just always been that way. Manny still laughs at me. He's like, dude, you don't know who anybody is. I'm like, I know I'm just bad with names and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I remember the works. You know, if I read something I really like, you know, of course mm-hmm. I'm going to remember that. Remember that author forever. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's, it's less of like a, um, you know, that ascetic artist. I'm just focused on the work, not interested. Yeah. In... yeah, no, it's just a function of my life. And I mean, I, I work, you know, obviously full time and have um, a family. So I'm busy and, you know, and I devote the chunks of time I can uh, to writing and to reading and stuff. And I, I really don't have the, if I'm going to do that, I don't have the time to stay current with all the right. The, the, the lit drama or the mm-hmm. enjoy the morsels that I catch and that's about it <laughs> I dig it that's yeah. gotta be a more peaceful existence um yeah, yeah. So, so sometimes I like to ask people about like writing full time the prospect of that um and, and it interests me how many people don't have like an interest or a goal um, to write full time, to quit their job and and just do writing. Um, is, was that, is that ever something that was in your mind? I mean, you said uh, in another interview, you have like three kids, right? Yeah. I like, I liked you. You had to look up for a second <laughs> to think about it. So yeah. I guess it it's it's kind of like a different question for somebody who's who's much more established than than somebody who's just published their first book and getting a taste of it or something like that. Oh, I would love. I mean, you know, I kind of like. I guess I allow I allow, uh, allow myself to maybe daydream about it, you know. But I but like practically, I don't. Um, I don't like plan on that ever being a reality that I could, you know live off of my writing um i just don't you know i think that's kind of a a shot in the dark i you know um it would be great yeah i would love it but i don't um i don't know i just don't see the you know the kind of writing that makes that kind of money um you know i just don't see fitting in into that i would have to be lucky i mean if someone i you know if i'm like someone I know is um, murdered in some really spectacular way. And then I could write a book about that and make some money. Uh, right. You know, you know, but I don't, there's not that, it doesn't seem like there's that many sorts of books that really sell. Right. I, yeah. You, you have to have yeah. something tangential, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, in addition to the, to the writing that relates to the writing yeah. to, you know, draw people in because people, you know, it's, it's hard to find books that you want to read. Like, even if you're clued in to reading, you know, uh, yeah, I, I see it on, I see it on Reddit all the time. People talking about how like, oh man, nobody writes books like X. And I'm like, I've read six of those books this year, you know? Yeah. But, oh yeah, I have more books than I can read. Yeah, that I want. You know, I'm, I'm, because I didn't 
go to school. Uh, so I wasn't like, so I didn't have the reading list in college. And so I've kind of constantly been catching up on all the classics and stuff that I haven't read, you know, and now with all the, with being more involved in the, you know, contemporary scene, you know, there's books coming out all the time that I want to read. Um, I'm in the middle of fucked up by Damien Mm -hmm. Park, which expat published, but, um, unfortunately at this right before the book came, I had started rereading war and peace because i had oh, this i have this big collection it's got the cossacks war and peace and anna karenina mm. in the same collection it's a the same book and so i like for whatever reason i started rereading war and peace and then fucked up came and so it's hard you know to get to both they're both ridiculously long right yeah that's am, you so can work out with those two books like yeah yeah yeah, I actually started, I was reading Fucked Up because I was um, selling my plasma. And oh. the volume, the Tolstoy volume I have was way too big and heavy to hold with one hand, you know, while I'm donating plasma. So I would read Fucked Up because that I could manage with one hand. Um, but now I haven't gone back to the plasma center because I just got inconvenient and it kind of bruised me up and. So I haven't gotten back into fucked up for a, a, a week or two, but I'll get to it. Certainly finish it. I like it. Yeah, I, I, uh, I ordered that with your books from Expat because I was hopping on the on the bandwagon, and <laughs> yeah, and it's the hottest thing going. It sure is. It's amazing. Uh, my wife was paging through it. She's like, "Oh man, I don't know. I don't know about oh, this yeah. one." Sometimes yeah. I'll read to her out loud as she's like cooking dinner or something. And when it's, when it's the more experimental stuff, sometimes she'll shake her head. Um, but she's like, yeah, I don't know if I want to hear about this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that's the whole point of that one, I guess, is to see. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty honest with you just having the title fucked up that like if that's mm-hmm. gonna scare you off um and yeah. and the fact that it's you know a mega novel uh yeah like, you, you gotta be willing to play to play with it yeah. yeah yeah you know you're getting into something it's not gonna be a light read yeah <laughs> um but speaking of reading aloud i read some of napa Wapi county blues out loud while she was making dinner um and it was the the chapter about uh, Blaine's shoes. Oh sure. And uh, the thing I found really interesting about how it sounded out loud is that it it read like like a children's story almost, like mm-hmm. the sort of instructive way um, that the events are presented to you. Um, obviously, not the content but um it was it was very much just like and little bear went down to the road and there he saw his friends but instead of little bear it's blaine and instead of his friends it's terrible children yeah yeah that was uh, has always been um yeah i try to you know where i got that idea that you should um maybe it has to do with um there's kind of overlap to me between, um, you know, music, songwriting, and literature, 
um, you know, not necessarily it doesn't have to be, but I've always kind of taken the approach of um, writing um, that it's sort of the storytelling aspect that there should be a musicality to it. Mm. At least my stuff, I always, usually everything I write, I read over enough and sort of read it out loud. Not always literally out loud, but at least in a voice, you know, to try to kind of capture the the musicality of it, the meter of it. Mm -hmm. And the new book is much more so plays with that idea. Almost some of it like sounding like, like Dr. Seuss stuff, almost that very, you know, musical a lot more. And I think after um, Nikolai Andreevich was, you know, the, a very strict kind of structure to it that uh, when I finished that, you know, I wanted to do something that was a lot more kind of free, playful and, and, you know, not structured. Right. I'm not so careful. Don't have to be so careful about words and and scene setting. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I, I have to keep reminding myself that you, wrote Nikolai like around this other book in terms of time mm-hmm. which is an interesting thing and that's I, I work similarly so that's an interesting thing how one kind of can inform the other do you think the the song writing background that you have um is is part of the reason why your narrators are like in first person but very sort of like back from the story um, I don't know, maybe vice versa. Cause I guess I was, um, you know, I think the, it's the same impetus that, um, like the music, my music songwriting and that comes from the, that the literature comes from, but I think I was, um, I like, I always like to say I've identified as a writer my entire life mm-hmm. uh, and always, you know, wasn't always trying to publish, but even as a kid, I think. I kind of always saw things in terms of a narrative. Um, That's just always how I thought. Mm. Um, And I would, you know, and and that's just kind of the inner um, dialogue is always kind of a, it's a narrative. It's just the way I think. And I've always, and, and so I think probably music I picked up, you know, later in my teenage years or whatever. So, think the the writing impetus probably was kind of there already and i think they share you know they share the muse maybe (laughs) yeah correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think it's ever explicitly stated who the narrator of nikolai andreevich is no not necessarily just a local just a just a guy who's there yeah Yeah, that was another thing that i kind of ripped from the that was a, a, a Dostoevsky thing to me. It, it was always, we're always supposed to, you know, operating under the assumption that this is some real person that's telling us the story. And yet he has no like agency at all. You don't ever learn anything about him. He has no, you know, but, but it's, it's just some unnamed person gossip. You know, somehow knows everything. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It's like an oral tradition sort of like holdover. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and that kind of jives with the whole 
the historical bent, I guess. Um, I want to know, uh, can you talk about, uh, Joyless House a little bit, sort of like as a concept where that started and, yeah. and where it's going is, is an interesting idea to me. Yeah. Um, it started kind of the same way my Twitter account started. I was convinced by my brother-in-law who is very, um, He's very, very tech savvy. In fact, he works for a big tech company um, and stuff. And he was instrumental in basically saying, like, kind of taking me by the hand and saying, you know, if you don't have any social media, if you don't do any of this stuff, no one's going to know you're writing. You know, he like, had to explain it to me like a child. I'm like, oh, all right. I'm like kind of begrudgingly got into it. And that's when I, you know, started the website. And uh, just as a way to sort of force myself on the community, you know, like here I am, I'll, you know, review your books and publish some stuff. And then at the same time, you know, it, it was to a way to have like a landing spot for my own books when I was just publishing, self-publishing, you know. So it was kind of a way to try to create some kind of, footprint and credibility um but then but then along the way you know of course i happened to come across a lot of cool stuff and you know um got to do like like i interviewed um uh sam pink on there and uh um teresa smith who's i would say is my favorite living writer she has a she had published on expat as well. Um, but got to interview her, um, and, and publish a lot of stuff by, you know, cool writers that were generous enough to send stuff my way. So it really kind of, I started it without any, with really the only in, intention of, you know, was very self-serving. Like, I'm just going to, you know, put myself out there so that, you know, people so i have some sort of footprint some sort of visibility and realized that um to go along with it i, I probably had to play the game a little bit and act like i cared about these other people's right art. and then against all odds you know happened to make like really good friends and and uh come across some real stuff that i really was like inspiring i mean that was um a lot of the, uh, you know, when I got into Sam's stuff and kind of had a got a dialogue going with him, it, that kind of inspired me to break off and write Napa Wapi County Blues mm. because I just, it was like at that time I was so immersed in the uh, Russia book that I, it was like a chance to blow off steam and like do something fun, something that came easily, you know. So that, so that you know, it, so you can be, you know, influenced and inspired and by the you know contemporaries as well it's kind of yeah. good exercise for me <laughs> well yeah it turns out you know meeting people on the pretense of mutual interests is a good way to make friends i guess yeah yeah i guess it makes sense <laughs> uh i i like i like the feel of it i when i talk to um the surfaces people we talked a little bit about like 
kind of going back to this web 1.0 sort of ideology of like having a singular website that encapsulates something to go to rather than Twitter, which is everybody's brand stacked on top of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've, I've been kind of like slowly going on a tear of like discovering these other little websites that, or even just like people's blogs and stuff like that. Uh, that like getting back to this basics of, of what the internet used to be feels really good. I think. Yeah. 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 There's more, you have more maybe agency in following the trail of, you know, things that interest you as opposed to like an algorithms dictating. Like if you jump on neutral spaces and Mm -hmm. just, yourself you go on the next thing that catches your eye and yeah yeah neutral spaces uh i i think was the thing that sort of woke me up to that idea like i'd been aware of of html giant but i think first came aware of it the first time it was really shutting down so it was going through a bunch of like archives and saying ah shit i missed this fun train of debauchery Mm -hmm. that was happening on the internet i wonder if i'm gonna be able to experience something like that again there's a period there was a period when i was like first discovering the writing community on the internet where i felt like i was waiting for something to happen uh which i guess maybe isn't close to your experience um but there there seems to be times where there's a like I don't know. There's too much and not enough all mm-hmm. happening at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you feel like you don't have time to really experience something, you know, when, you know, there's like, there's a hundred links to pieces and, you know, try to read them all or, and it's all, yeah, the internet, it, I'm old, you know, I like, I'm like kind of a take my time with something and, you know, I still, I still, um, read stuff online and I'll read blogs and, um, you know, online magazines and stuff, but I still, um, I, I like to sit down with something paper. Mm-hmm. Just, I don't know. I'm just old fashioned, I guess. I guess I look at the, you know, the, the internet writing and stuff. Um, as kind of a, you know, an introduction, you know, yeah. way to discover, to discover stuff, discover writers. Um, and I know it's not necessarily the way it is, but just, just for me, my experience, you know, I want to sit down with the book. That's the way I came to it was trying to get little pieces published places. And then the places that accepted me, I'd just say, okay, who else did they also accept? Mm -hmm. and then branch Mm -hmm. out from there like a very kind of structured logical way um yeah so how did you and manuel and expat um link up well actually there was um we had a mutual some mutual friends because uh a fellow that we had toured with and collaborated with musically who was a Wisconsinite who was grew up 
you know, close to where I grew up. We knew him in, in, through the punk scene here. And then he ended up um, living with Manny, lived in New York for a time when my friend Kevin also did. And so they kind of knew each other. And so Kevin kind of dropped Manny. He said, oh, hey, you should check out this this expat. And this was before I think he maybe even had an online presence, but they did the journal. Mm-hmm. And so I had been kind of recommended him. And then when I was cruising around on Twitter or whatever, kind of remembered that, oh, yeah, I should look up. I should look up this cat and found the stuff. And then from there, it was a real easy, real easy relationship, you know, because we obviously had a lot in common. I mean, these are, you know, sort of a lot of mutual interests and mutual connections and, and stuff. So, huh. So, so very organic. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah, it was uh, bizarre that we had. Oh no, it's not a twist off. <laughs> uh, I'm sort of taken aback. I don't know why it is, but I, I, uh, your online presence or lack thereof, or 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 my anxiety, uh, led me to believe that like there's a lot more calculation happening on your end um and to find out that it's a lot more organic feels pretty good yeah yeah i think i don't you know i'm able to kind of do things online because i don't thank you i don't have the you know i think people that grow up with all the um all the different social media and it's like i think of my kids and stuff like it's it's like this, it's a reality. It's like an extension of the world. And like, to me, it never carried that weight because it like, I was an adult before it ever really became so prominent. And so I guess I don't take it seriously, even though, I mean, even though there's, there's tangible relationships and things that come about from it, but I I guess I don't, I don't have the anxiety about like saying the wrong thing and, and, getting myself canceled and all that. I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't take it that seriously. I still look at Twitter and stuff as a kind of a playground. And I mean, yeah, yeah it just doesn't carry that much weight. Right. Or, you know, so yeah, my, my presence isn't real. Cal- I mean, it's calculated to the extent that it's sort of a, it's kind of like a, you know, I guess I play a character sort of on Twitter and with my website and stuff, but you know, it comes from a genuine place, I guess. I mean, it's kind of my sense of humor and, and whatnot. It's fun that it's, you get a place to, a place to play. Yeah. You know, and if people don't get it, then I guess fine. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't, you wouldn't probably like my writing anyway then, you know, so that's an organic kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I was talking with somebody a while back um, about, like, talking to people on Twitter and then getting on, like, a video chat with them or meeting them in real life and, and kind of seeing the other side of the coin to them. Uh and that's something I don't know. Maybe it's because I went to school for broadcasting, so I have this idea that like 
any point anyone's going to perceive me that's going to be like the me that is you know to be consumed um whether or not it's in person or not because if somebody recognizes you know the host of the radio show's voice in public he's still that character to them uh so i mean for for me it's even kind of beyond um like social media is is just like another tool of Mm -hmm. of that sort of thing you know i'll never forget that like my wife's mom worked at a Kmart and saw the weather lady from one of the channels all the time and like had very specific things to say about her um, <laughs> that like ruined her weather broadcasts for yeah. the rest of, you know, as long as she's a weather lady. Yeah. Shit, it's just not the same anymore when you saw her in like sweatpants at Kmart. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's yelling at one of the greeters about something. Yeah. Yeah. I've had very similar experience with one of the local anchors where I live. So I'm pushing a cart at Shopco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, oh, yeah. I really hope, I was just going to say, you know, it's, it's an odd time with all the um, COVID now because we had been on kind of a, I'd uh, done a lot of like enjoyed the, the in-person um, touch of, you know, doing readings and, you know, and I had gone down by Manny in Miami and, you know, we did a couple, did some readings and did a show where we had bands and did readings. And then um, right before COVID hit, I was in New York and we did a, did a reading. Um, Teresa Smith was out and Anthony Dragonetti Um and then I literally like, there are a bunch of writers coming in, Damien and Sam, or Dope Boy were supposed to come in right after I left. And that's right when everything, they closed everything up, you know, that was March. Um, mm-hmm. So it was like, I, and now since then, of course, you know, there's online stuff that Misery Loves, uh, Misery Loves, what is it? Misery Tourism? Yeah, Misery, misery Tourism. Loves- yeah. You know they do their thing. There's there's stuff on online, but I really miss the the in person. Yeah. That was kind of the value in um, do, doing a band for so long that you know you're we weren't going to make any money or go anywhere, but just the 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 people you met. You, know, you met the best people. You know, in any given city, I felt like we met you know the best people and the realest people and saw the best part of the city. You know. Right. The people that, were, that take you in their home and put you up, and it was like it's priceless. Yeah, I I never got to that point when I was in a band in high school, probably because we were in high school, so we just played the same venue over and over and over again. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, I've I've never done a reading. Uh, that's like one of the the writer checkmark things I've never hit. And it hasn't even really occurred to me that that's a thing lately because we've all been been stuck at home. And the nature of my job where I have to be to work at five in the morning kind of precludes me from going out at eight in the afternoon and then, you know, reading and listening to other people's readings and stuff. But um, what what has what 
is is doing readings and and being in a in a band like is that kind of the same sort of experience um yeah yeah there nobody shows up you know <laughs> that you're reading or playing to your friends um and it everybody yeah. smokes outside until it's time for their the person they came to see to be on stage yeah yeah it's kind of the same um but there's like i don't know i guess i've found value in that like it's a little bit of um you know you know you're going through that that's kind of the it feels like an initiation into something you know i don't know what but just a, uh, i guess it i think it builds character if nothing else as sure. an artist and it, and it sort of strengthens relationships you know in, within in the scene to mm-hmm. you know I, I don't know I, I think there's there's value to it I, I've always thought that because it's kind of out of my natural wheel, wheelhouse you know I'm not like um super outgoing or not necessarily looking for the to be the center of attention but um you know that dynamic where you're uh, if you have the microphone or whatever you have the stage for 20 minutes or you have the the lectern or whatever for to do your thing like uh, there's this it's an interesting dynamic i just feel like there's there's value to it and there's there's value to just the whole endeavor you know this sort of doomed endeavor you know deciding that you're gonna go through the trouble of doing it anyway you know and it's sort of yeah i don't know it's worth something to me i don't know what it means ultimately but i like that i i think that um it's an important thing i i I, the subject comes up every now and again how to get people who don't read indie lit how do we get them to do that you know because it uh one of my poetry professors just joked one time that poetry is just a whole bunch of poets handing around the same five dollar bill over and over and over there's no you know the people who read poetry are the people who write poetry and they're they're reading their friends and if they read somebody who isn't their friend they go on the internet and they make friends with them um yeah and uh, Never North was talking about how she would like do tours of readings and and do bands and stuff and I brought up that there was a poet who used to do poetry as an opening for like Nirvana back in the 90s and stuff like that yeah. and um yeah I, I I keep coming back to this idea that once everybody gets vaccinated and microchipped we all just need to we we need to start integrating um literature and bands and and go on tours oh yes that's how we did you know i had um what i was kind of doing got into doing was my uh my friend kind of my co-songwriter um in the band my friend casey was um you know i'd have him play a song on guitar kind of a a repetitive riff and i would read and then he would kind of i'd it'd be a pause and he'd step in and do like a verse to the song and I'd read. And so, yeah, we were always looking to, looking to do that, make it kind of a little different than just standing there and, you know, 
your eyes on your paper reading yeah. adding a little bit of element visceral element to it nobody knows when to clap that sort of thing yeah <laughs> at least with music you give them something that they're familiar with yeah. <laughs> and I, I feel i feel like there's so many ways that we could present doing readings that would just be more interesting than just standing there reading like mm. i don't know and mm. it's it will be exciting if people do it to see how they experiment with the form of doing readings uh that i think that's kind of what i'm most excited about about that prospect especially you know on this show i have a lot of really more experimental stuff this is like the first like straight ahead prose piece i've read for this show in a while in a couple months and um like it'd be fascinating to to see how some people translate something that's not you know that's very visual into an audio sort of thing Mm -hmm. yeah it's cool to mix mix mediums and yeah hope we can go back to it oh yeah i'm sure i'm sure it will eventually happen (laughs) either we're gonna get vaccinated or we're all just gonna get it and Mm -hmm the the bodies was, will fall where they may i was told it would be over uh in november and it's not yeah you know i was told when the, the election happened that that would be it yeah I was, I was looking forward to that i was like oh man yeah. joe biden got elected yeah. november okay. 5th here we go it's gonna disappear yeah. and then Call didn't <laughs> very confused about that there, somebody has some answering to do yeah <laughs> agreed what I'm fascinated with with how people edit. What is your editing process like, especially as a person who didn't, you know, get the MFA to to learn how to revise, revise, revise. Um, I I do, man. I do a lot of editing. Um, it used to be like a three, like a step, like all my other books until the new one that I'm writing, which I'm writing on a do on a Google Doc. That's the first time I've ever written straight into a computer it would always be um longhand i wrote at work a lot in my clipboard Mm. you know smuggle those pages home on the weekend and then i would do i did a copy on the typewriter i would type out a copy and that was sort of an edit uh and then uh, and then when the whole thing was done then i would you know type it all into a, a word or a google doc or whatever and then so that was kind of a three-step three-step process there, and then and then you know do a big edit when when it was all done. Um, but now, yeah, I don't. I'm not a big rewriter, I guess. I mm. mean, I I read over. I mean, when I put something down, it's generally there it is, and I'll read it over quite a bit, and uh, and just tweak, you know, tweak words take a few words out here and there but um no it's generally i write pretty slowly it's kind of painstaking um and then it's kind of once it's down it's usually staying um mm. aside from like i say like some words getting tweaked and maybe a few a few extraneous words getting cut um, 
do you plan a lot then beforehand or is it uh discovery yeah. writing as i as people call yeah. it yeah i don't there's like um i don't outline really um i, I have a general kind of a general outline or an arc and there's like specific scenes i know i want to write that i want to get to um but uh but no it's it's mostly as i go you know it it kind of story kind of grows organic you know i have an idea i have an idea of the arc and kind of the main plot points that i'm going to get to but a lot of it's discovery writing i like that term Mm. I think I'm going to use that. Good. It's pretty appropriate. Um, well, I, I want to I want to open it up to you. Is there anything like, I don't know, when, when people talk about writing, is there something that, like, for you gets left out all the time? Hmm. Um, no, I, I, I wouldn't, the only, the only, uh, no, I guess personally, um, I just like, I just, uh, I'm just still kind of, um, I'm old fashioned. I hope people still, still, um, appreciate the, the technical, aspect of it you know i'm a prose writer Mm -hmm. i still like to you know i enjoy experimental stuff um but i guess i'm just kind of dubious or cynical about the notion of uh you know reinventing the art Mm. of writing i mean it's cool like credit to anybody who goes out on a limb with their writing and tries to push the envelope as it were but um I guess, I don't know. I think there's something to be said for the craftsmanship, (laughs) the craft. I still like that. I still like a writer that can write prose and write characters. writing which is i think it's going to be entitled um uh boingers a club for gentlemen okay so i'll give a little background i was as i was saying talking about westerns um i had just reread lonesome dove uh which is one of my favorite books uh, by larry mcmurtry uh, and then i read blood meridian so this is all kind of rattling in my head So this chapter is called The Lonesome Trail or A Certain Grimness on the Horizon Nears. And what happened is, um, the gist of it is, young boy has fallen in with a gang of outlaws who are driving a a herd of cattle to Montana. Montana has not been, you know, maybe just a few cattlemen up there now. Um, And what happened is they just ran into a, filing pack of uh, kiwas and there was a big big battle uh the kiwas are all slaughtered and it was only um dilly and billy that were left after this battle 
after this fight. So now they're, uh, so that's where we pick up the story. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, there's some, there's some colorful language in here. You're going to have to consider that the, uh, where the narrators came from, uh, you know, this is 18 shortly after the civil war, I guess in the wild west. So they're, they're, they're rough, rough folk. All right. <clears throat> Me and Dilly loaded up all the scalps and other bodily trophies in the wagon. Then we had a big breakfast and set out riding on the wagon, pulled by a couple of dumb mules with a couple of good horses tied behind. All the while, Dilly didn't talk. I had no idea what he reckoned on doing. The beef was scattered all over the plain, and we didn't make no effort to round him. But as we rolled along in the wagon, the better number of them was generally in our view. And in a straggling sort of way, they seemed to wander mostly in the direction we'd been driving them in for the month prior. After a while, we happened upon some more engines. They was camped out and looked more or less peaceable. Of course, I doubt any engine could ever be truly peaceable. Dilly rode right up to them without breaking pace or saying a word about it. Turned out there was mostly women and children and a few wrinkled old men. Dilly started dealing with one of the men. He kept pointing back at our beef, straggling across the plains. It seemed Dilly was trying to make a deal for him. He'd point and gesticulate, and the wrinkled old man would look on serious. After a while, the old man said something to a woman, and she saw to it that some youngsters presented to Dilly and me a pile of blankets and trinkets and some jugs of whiskey. Dilly disapproved, and the old man had some more pieces of engine crap brought out, and this went on for a while. I had nothing to do this whole time but sit there and watch. I came to notice the women and children really eyeballing the pile of trophies on the back of the wagon which, in fairness, had begun to emanate a pretty ripe, awful smell by this time. It took me a minute to guess these people were probably looking at the heads and nuts of their fathers and sons and brothers on that wagon. I don't know how they expect you to end up living out on the plains this way. After a while, it became pretty clear these poor savages didn't have nothing worthwhile to barter with. Dilly finally got exasperated and gave up. We took the pile of crap the engines had laid, laid out for us and threw it in the wagon, then we rode off. I suspect the engines lived on that beef for a good long while, and that's how Dilly the Spud ended up being the biggest do-gooden white man the Kiowas of the Oklahoma Territory ever knew. After that, Dilly and me just rode and rode. I believe Dilly had the notion that we might be able to sell them Kiowa trophies somewhere. I'm not sure why else we would have kept carting them around, what with them stinking to high almighty heaven and all. But for many a day, we saw nary a person on which to make an offer. And out on the dead hot plains of Kansas, them engine pelts got to smelling like the pungentest sewer in hell. Finally, about two days north of the Arkansas River, we came upon an army fort. We figured the army boys might be keen on the pelts, if only for company morale and amusement. But as soon as they sighted our old wagon rolling into view, they sent out an envoy to tell us different. Dilly the spud, the man on horseback shouted, as soon as he got near enough for us to hear him shout. I'm Captain so-and-so. I represent General so-and-so of the U.S. Army. We don't want no trouble. You take whatever stinking load you're carrying in that wagon and just get on. In a rather curious display of acquiescence then, it seemed to me anyway, in light of what Dilly himself had shown to be his general methodology in dealing with authority trouble or threats of any other kind, Dill just turned his head away from the Army man and rode on indeed. As we rolled past the fort, I could see men with rifles up in the gun towers watching us the whole way. Later that day, we spotted some engine braves a couple miles off. Dilly pointed the wagon their way, figuring that if these engines weren't friendly with the Kiowas, 
They might like to make necklaces and headgear and what have you out of their enemies' scalps and dicks. But the engines rolled the other way. Dilly waved his hat and signaled friendly-like. Those birds stayed far ahead of us and wouldn't let us close the gap. Seemed they didn't want nothing to do with us, neither. We didn't see nobody after that. And the plains of Kansas was endless. There wasn't shit to see, actually. Just always the almighty reek of them rotten Indian pelts. And always the sound of them horses and mules' hooves. And them creaky old wagon wheels. And rising above the low thunder and creaky complaint to the animals and wagon was a high tinkling sound. Clink, clink, clink came to realize it was the whiskey jugs we got from the Kiowa survivors that was making that high music. And I reckon Dilly realized it too. He persisted in what I would call a real grim stare. It seemed to me he was concentrating steady on what was like a bright melody dancing over the top of the rough and steady traveling song. Then whiskey bottles singing over the drumming of the animal's hooves and the rickety fiddle of the creaky old wagon. Finally, after not saying a word for a couple of days at least, Dilly the Spud snapped out, Grab me one of them damn bottles from back there. He popped the cork and took a drink like he was mad at it. Tossed his head of the dribbles on his chin like they was left there by someone impolite. He screwed up his eyes and leaned over the reins. His fist curled around the bottle and drove in such a, post and drove in such a posture from there on out, looking like to lean into a long argument. And when his rhetorical foe would take a sly point, Dilly would pull the cork and suck intently, as if just to herd up his thoughts and get back his wind. Dilly didn't say nothing to me, but he did seem to become somehow more conversational. About halfway through that first bottle of whiskey, he eased up his posture a bit and even tipped his hat back on his head. I guess whatever argument Dilly had been having with the winds of the plains had come to a sort of mutual understanding. Dilly's mean old mouth found its way into a faint half-smile. It wasn't the curled-up sneer he wore before he killed somebody, neither. Not sure what it was prompting me to speak up. Hey, Dill. You ever think maybe the wind out here is made up of the spirits of all them dead Indians? Seems to me that's an idea I heard spoke of once. Probably pretty far-fetched, really. But Dilly considered the point. Don't seem all that far-fetched, he decided after a while. I suppose all them dead spirits gotta go somewheres. Don't imagine they'd be let up into heaven. For some reason, I felt full of questions all of a sudden. Maybe it's just because after all these months of riding with Dilly the Spud, I never thought he'd waste a breath on answering one. You think critters go up into heaven, Dilly? I mean, the black ones? Dilly actually got a laugh out of this one. I highly doubt that. How the hell would a white man feel he got up into heaven and find it all full of Now, anybody who'd watched Dilly the Spud hack up man, woman, child, and beast just for not liking the way they looked would have thought me a mad fool to go on questioning them this way. And I guess I'm rather mystified by it myself. But my curiosity spurred me on. Well, you rolled with it, here, Dilly. That boy from Mizzou, remember? Dilly spat. Yeah, and what of it? I ride with men can handle their business. He took a big swig of whiskey and sucked at his teeth. Shoot. Don't mean we gotta go and fill heaven all up with us. Besides, I ride with mouthy little kids, too. And with that, and I'll swear it on my life, Dilly looked at me and smiled. Real genuine teeth and lips smile. We made camp that night on the side of a hill. Dilly figured it was going to storm, so we hunkered down as far as we could under a little overhang. He was at the bottle all day, and by the time we sat down to the fire, he'd uncorked the second jug. Now, my experience with bad drunks is that they either get extra violent or fall down stupid and eventually pass out. 
I certainly never seen whiskey improve a man's disposition like I did Dilly's. He made polite about the beans, offering, offering to serve me up like he was my nanny or something. And when the chill of night came on, he concerned himself with whether I had my blanket from the wagon. If I didn't know better, I would have swore Dilly the Spud, bloodiest man in this whole country, had suddenly grown sweet on me. Now our habit was to travel until we got too tired to go on, and once we made camp and had a little bit to eat, we generally bedded down right off. But on this night, Dilly sat up with that whiskey bottle, watching the storm roll in over the black and purple horizon. Though I was tired, I was too curious about the change come over Dilly to go right to sleep. The crackling and rumbling began in the distance and kept creeping closer all the time. Damn, Dilly commented, gonna be a big one. It wasn't five minutes then and the storm was on top of us. Rain poured down in a sheet from the overhang and the world lit up at odd intervals. It reminded me of the flash off the camera in a family photograph I'd sat for back when I had kin. With the excitement of the storm going on, I didn't feel tired at all. Shoot, Dilly said. Hour ago, you'd have had to drink your own piss if you wanted a drop. Now the whole world's a dang quagmire. And Dilly took another swig of whiskey, which, of course, he could have drank over his own piss after all, even if it was so dry. I noticed that Dilly's words kind of slurred and sloshed around in his mouth before coming out now and he talked pretty slow. At the same time, he seemed to have a pretty good idea of what he was saying. Billy, Dilly said, because that is my name. You ever know what a bug is? I knew what bugs was, of course. Something told me Dilly wasn't talking about creepy crawlers. Dilly laughed in a way I never heard him do before, and he looked down for a while. I know they call me Dilly the Spud, he admitted, and I wouldn't think twice to kill a man for it either. He said this second part more in the way of the dilly I was accustomed to, hate-filled and challenging. But then, just as quickly, he was once again humbled. Fact is, I had an even worse nickname. One didn't make the spud seem so bad. Dilly looked at me with a kind of fever in his eyes. When I was a younger man back east, they called me Dilly the Bug. But hell, I guess you don't really know what that means anyhow. Dilly stopped looking at me then and went back to the bottle. He didn't say nothing for a while, and I got to thinking he was ready to nod off after all. But then he spoke again, quietly, not really looking at me or looking at anything. You ever feel real love for someone, Billy? I hadn't any fast answer for that question. But when I didn't say nothing, Billy looked at me real intently, and I judged by the fever in his eyes my answer was somehow real important to him. Well, I only vaguely remember my ma. I guess I'd have loved her, though like I say, I can't really remember. Dilly seemed disappointed. I knew my answer was probably no good, but then Dilly didn't seem disappointed in me so much as just kind of generally left wanting. Shoot, he said again. Love your ma ain't exactly the kind I'm talking about, Billy. You know, you know when the boys used to fuck the beef? Or say when I fucked all them Mexican ladies in San Antonio? Well, that ain't love either, Billy. Not the kind I'm talking about anyway. I guess I sure didn't know what Dilly was talking about, and he didn't know how to say it either. Shoot, Dilly said, and affected a little shiver. Sure is a cold one tonight. What with this storm and all. I guess, well, I guess you might want to sleep under the blanket here with me, for warmth and all. I guess hearing such an idea come out of Dilly the Spud's mouth was more unbelievable than all the things I've seen riding with him for the past couple months. And I've seen the most violentest things you can imagine. Then, too, I guess I was pretty trained to the notion that you didn't go against nothing, Dilly the Spud said no matter how unbelievable it seemed. So I crawled over by him and got underneath his blanket. There wasn't no more talking after that. 
Gilly did a lot of things to me that seemed about the same as the boys did to the doggies, or how he did that sheriff in Fort Worth. But then he was also tender about it and held on to me and stroked my hair. Them parts seemed about how I would have remembered my ma hugging me, telling me sweet things and whatnot, though the fucking hurt something awful. The storm kept on until just before dawn. When it did finally quit and the sun come up against the scattering clouds, it made for a sky the beauty of which I don't reckon ever seeing the equal of. Or maybe I was just prone to not noticing. Yet there was something overpowering sad about this sunrise. Like why would any kind of beauty like that suffer to exist in such a world of killing and hate as ours is? Dilly slept late into the day like I'd never seen him do before. But then we had nowhere to get to that required any kind of hurry anyhow.